You know, most of us think of innovation as like this big topic that's out of our reach, inventing the electric automobile or, you know, SpaceX or something. And, and we say, great for Elon Musk, but I'm a normal person. How does that apply to me? And I tried to flip that whole concept upside down. This is like innovation for the rest of us. Again, sort of helping everyday people become everyday innovators. Welcome to Playmakers. I'm your host, Paul Epstein, 15-year NFL and NBA business exec and best-selling author of The Power of Playing Offense. In my journey, I have discovered that there are two types of people in this world. The difference between elite performers and the rest of the pack, or what I like to call those that play offense versus those that play defense. Defense always on their heels, offense on our toes. Defense playing not to lose, offense playing to win. Defense, the market dictates the terms. Offense, we operate on our terms, playing with purpose, playing with passion, and taking control of our future. So now, the question is, how do you want to play? And here on the Playmakers Podcast, we play offense 10 out of 10 times. As we ramp up toward today's episode, pull out your notepad so you can capture all the action so we can make plays and level up together. Playmakers, it's about that time to welcome Josh Linkner into the conversation. Josh has been the founder and CEO of five tech companies, which sold for a combined value of over $200 million. He's twice been named the Ernst Young Entrepreneur of the Year, as well as a recipient of the United States Presidential Champion of Change Award. Josh now serves as chairman and co-founder of Platypus Labs, an innovation research, training, and consulting firm. He's the proud author of four books, including the New York Times bestsellers, Discipline Dreaming and The Road to Reinvention. Today, you're going to hear us talk about his newest release, Big Little Breakthroughs. Josh is also a passionate Detroiter, father of four, professional-level jazz guitarist, and has a slightly odd obsession for greasy pizza. I hope you're as fired up for the conversation with Josh as I am. And as a reminder, many of the key takeaways of today's show can be found in the show notes on playmakerspod.com. With that, let's welcome Josh Linkner into the Playmakers Podcast. Josh, welcome to Playmakers. How are we doing? You know, I'm doing great. I'm just delighted to be with you. Absolutely. And I'm fired up to be able to uh, either reintroduce or introduce you to the entire Playmaker community. We know that you are the king and guru. You would never call yourself this, but I will humbly call you the guru of innovation. And you and I have shared, whether it be keynote stages or thought leadership spaces. So we think the world of you. But I want to go back to yester, yesteryear. And a passion of yours and something that was a trade and a craft is that you are a jazz guitarist. So that's near to your core. Then you make this really interesting transition going on to be the founder of five and fact check me if I'm wrong on any of this five tech startups, which had a total exit value of over $200 million. So walk us through how a jazz guitarist 
makes that pivot, makes that transition? What inspired it? Yeah, thank you so much. And it's always a pleasure to sit down with you, Paul. I have such deep respect for your work. Um, so what happened for me is, uh, so in jazz, jazz is mainly an improvisational art form. It's kind of cool. I don't know of any other art form really that is you're sort of composing and performing simultaneously. And, and, and every night is different. So if you and I were in a jazz combo and we played the same song for 10 years in a row, it would be literally different every night. And in the same way that our conversation today isn't scripted, neither is most of jazz. And so jazz is all about sort of responsible risk-taking and, and inventing stuff in real time and, and course correcting when you screw something up inevitably and, and, and being a good collaborator sometimes and sometimes shining individually and other times being in a more of a supporting role. And in the weirdest way, those are the identical skills needed in modern business. So this transition seems like so weird. Like, why would a jazz musician become a tech <laughs> entrepreneur? But it actually is more aligned than you might think. In fact, by the time I started my first company at age 20, I'd never taken a business class. My business school was playing jazz music. But having since taken many business classes and read hundreds and hundreds of business books, I frankly think I learned more about business from playing jazz than I did by studying business. Ah, uh, that's fascinating. All right, we're going to double click on a couple pieces there only because you mentioned hundreds of business books. So that's a very big sample size. If you could pull out one, and I, I know that everybody listening in might have their own shtick and care about different things, unique things in life. But if you could recommend one of those hundreds that you feel is the most universally applicable to all playmakers out there. Yeah, there's this wonderful book called The Power of Playing Offense. Ah. <laughs> it is a wonderful book, though, and I do encourage everybody to read it. Um, you know, it's so hard, man, because I'm, I'm like you. I'm a voracious reader. I, I just, I love learning. Like, if I never made a cent again, I just like, I, I get excited when I'm learning. So I read, you know, easily 20 to 50 books a year. Uh, it's, it's always hard to say, like, what's your favorite book? I can tell you a few favorites recently. Um, Adam Grant's book, Rethink, is outstanding. Highly recommend it. Phenomenal. Um, John Acuff's new book, uh, Soundtracks, is outstanding. Highly recommend it. Um, the uh, Monk Who Sold His Ferrari from um, Robin Sharma has always been one of my faves. Uh, I mean, it's, it's like I said, so hard. Seth Godin's work is amazing. Uh, I think The uh, Atomic Habits is, is a phenomenal book. Um, so I, I would say that rather than individual, of course, you're welcome to borrow any of those books, but I just think the notion of being a lifetime learner is so meaningful. If we want to be a playmaker, like it, it always breaks my heart when I read these statistics that over 50% of college graduates, the last book they read was in college. And like, what do you mean? You graduate at 22 or 23 and you don't ever read another book like the rest of your life? Oh my gosh. And I understand there's, you know, we, we can consume content in different ways. It could be podcasts, it could be YouTube, whatever. But as long as we're always learning, I think that's the most important thing, far more than a particular book other than yours, of course. Of course, of course. All right, so let me ask you this. Uh, I, like you and a lot of playmakers, most, I would argue, playmakers out there are in the lifelong learner bucket. But let's say somebody says, I want to do it, but I just can't, you know, I'm just caught in the rat race. I'm caught in the madness. Like, I don't have the time. What perspective would you share if knowing the time is scarce, knowing that we're all fighting and scrapping for that extra minute, how have you personally been able to carve out that time in your life? And what advice would you give those of us that we want to be lifelong learners? Maybe it just hasn't hit our calendar just yet. 
Yeah, it's a great question, Paul. And I think so often when we want to do something, we think of it as like this all or nothing, change permanent type stuff. And it feels so overwhelming. Like who's got the time? And, and it, we think about being a lifetime learner means that I've got to find an extra, you know, 12 hours a week or something. I, I'm a big fan of small steps. And as you know, my newest book, Big Little Breakthroughs, is around taking small steps of creativity. But if you're talking about learning, I would say the same thing. Like, could you find two minutes a day, literally two minutes and, and start there? So that's 10 minutes, let's say just two minutes for five days a week, 10 minutes a week. Okay, there, there's 10 minutes, start there. But you know what I would do if I were someone in that predicament? The very first book I would read is I would go search for the number one time management book. Oh, there you go. So now you're double dipping. Yep. And then say, okay, are there any hacks? Yeah, so, so in other words, I would use the, the, the constraint of time to, and, and learning to say, how can I learn quickly to come, uncover more time? And I've seen many other people do this. They say, oh my gosh, I have no time. But you, you say to yourself, okay, if you studied time management for 30 days, just 30 days, that's it, 30 days, fixed time, could you find 15 minutes a day? I bet all of us could. Maybe, and they're little teeny steps. It's not even all at once. Maybe it's like you, you shift your commute by 10 minutes so there's slightly less traffic. Maybe you you consolidate the way, you know, when, when you have your meals so you have less downtime. Or, or maybe you put the printer two steps closer to you. So even if you got to that 15 minutes extra a day in the most messy, disorganized way, then you say, okay, cool, now I've got something new. And the question is, do you let it get absorbed in the whirlwind or do you re decide to reinvest it? And so in other words, I would use the concept of learning to learn how to get more time to solve my learning problem. Oh, that's fantastic. And to add one small piece to that, and I've been given this advice and it worked extraordinarily. So I just want to share it out with everybody listening in. If, as an example, not that it has to be a book, you can learn in many different ways, but just to say that if reading is your thought leadership of choice, start with something that you love. Start with something that you're passionate about. In other words, if you love innovation, pick up big little breakthroughs, right? But in all sincerity, if cooking is your thing, pick up a book in your passionate space because you will be more fired up to dive into it and to stick with it and to find that time and create those disciplined habits versus picking the subject that you hated in grade school. So just, you know, a quick hit there. Josh, I know you've been really- Yeah, just doubling down yeah, on that ahead. real quick. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but like there, there's also the, the thing that you love, but the format that you love. So, so sometimes like for me, when I read a physical book, which I do often, but you know, my eyes get a little tired. I actually enjoy listening to books. And then I say, okay, how can I get more time? Okay, if I'm in, if I'm in an airport and I'm waiting for my flight, well, I can be listening to a book or maybe some some people prefer watching stuff. You could either watch a video book or you could watch a lecture or, you know, a TED talk or something. So the point is the, the learning style that you appreciate most is, is another one to pursue. It doesn't have to be a textbook to be meaningful. Yeah. So it's not only what you do, it's how you do it. So that's great context that you added there. And I know, Josh, from our personal conversations and just hearing you in many platforms out there, you are a massive believer and fan of habits and rituals. And I know one thing that really caught my attention and I wanna share this out with everybody listening in. You have a five minute morning ritual. If you could share that with us, and I think this really expands on the concepts we've been talking about, but this is how Josh Linkner does it. And I think frankly, every single person can tap into this. Absolutely, so just a little context. My, my real passion in life is around human creativity. I believe that all human beings, and I mean all, have large reservoirs of dormant creative capacity. 
And when we bring that capacity to the surface, the outcomes that we care about the most come to life, whether that's a business outcome or a health outcome or a family or, or your church or whatever. So I think, in other words, think that we have a superpower locked inside of us. And if we can bring it out, then we can enjoy amazing results. So my, my body of work is basically around helping everyday people become everyday innovators. So my ritual, again, people can have different rituals for different things. My, mine isn't to build my, my biceps, it's to build my creativity muscle. So I do, and, I, and I, so I've written four books on the topic of human creativity. I've delivered over a thousand keynotes around the world. It's sort of my passion, helping people become more creative. So my five-minute-a-day ritual is around that, just, just to be clear. But here's what I've done. And actually, I wrote about it in the book. I've even since updated it a bit. Here's what I do every day, five minutes a day. And I just think before I say that, it's crucial that we're always updating it. So like, I just wrote this book. It came out two months ago, and I've since upgraded that ritual. So rather than committing to it... Really? So it's already evolved since the book came out? It's already evolved since the book came out. So my only suggestion to people is rather than thinking of stuff as all or nothing, like, oh, I'm going to have to do this for the rest of my life, just think about it in fixed time. Like, okay, I'm going to try this for 30 days. And if you like it, keep it. And if it works for the next 30 days, keep that. If it doesn't, tweak it, you know? So you don't have to make permanent change that you have to accept forever. Just try something. But anyway, here's my five-minute-a-day creativity ritual. Ready? Minute number one, they're five one-minute sprints. Minute number one, I call it guzzle inputs. They say in software engineering, if you want to change the outputs, you got to change the inputs. So for me, I spend one minute, that's it, absorbing the creativity of others. I might watch a band playing on YouTube. I might read a poem out loud. I could stare at a piece of art. I switch it up. But the idea is I just sort of bathe in the creativity of others to get my juices flowing. Love that. Minute number two. You'll relate to this being a sports enthusiast. It's a, it's basically a highlight reel. So we all can imagine a highlight reel in sports. I just quickly play a one-minute highlight reel in my mind of myself. Highlight reel of me doing something creative in the past that could be solving a problem, uh, dealing with a challenge, seizing a new opportunity. And that sort of anchors in my mind that I have the ability to do it. And then I sort of switch like a highlight reel of the future. I just sort of imagine myself doing something successful, like winning a deal or, or you know, having a, a moment of, uh, of success fueled by creativity. And so this one minute highlight reel anchored half of it in the past and half of it in the future helps me really kind of cement that this is within my grasp. Love it. So you're studying the past and then we'll go to number three. You're studying the past. You're kind of building that muscle memory, but then you're creating that more inspirational, maybe aspirational vision of the future. So you're, you're right. kind of piggybacking both. Yeah, almost, I know, not to get all geeky on you, but within that one minute, think of it as a 30-minute previous highlight reel that, that spills into a 30-minute future highlight reel. Got it. Seconds. All right, Sorry, cool. All right, what's well, step okay. number three? Minute, uh, se- minute number three, step number three. Um, I call this the unrelated problem. So here I'm basically doing jumping jacks for my creativity. It's not meant to solve a particular issue that I as a human being am dealing with. Not right, my family, my business, none of that. I might just take an unrelated problem, like, like here's a bottle of water I have and say, oh, okay, you know, um, environmental recycling of plastics. Again, that's not even my field. I know nothing about that topic. But I spend one minute, it's unrelated, not trying to solve it all at once. In other words, we know that plastics are a problem. I don't try to say, okay, can I come up with the perfect solution? People spend their whole careers and they don't come up with the perfect solution. Instead, I say, okay, I'm going to take one minute and say, what are small little ideas that might help the problem? So all I'm doing is sort of riffing on a problem outside of my expertise. I'm not trying to develop actual work product. I'm just trying to get my creative juices flowing. And so you could take on a problem like, you know, something really simple, like how do you get, you know, how do you uh, get people to stop speeding to how do you win some more Olympic gold medals if you're an athlete to, to how do we create peace in the Middle East? It doesn't matter. Whatever the topic is, big or small, just spend one minute coming up with how many little ideas can you think about for it? 
So Josh, quick question on that, and then we'll go to minute four. I love the concept. My question to you is, do you have to take action? So the way that you picked up that water bottle and, and then you say, okay, you're thinking more from an environmental standpoint, does every minute, does the third minute of your five minute routine and ritual, does it always result in action or does it sometimes just stay in thought? It never results in action. That's the whole point of it because I take ah. on an unrelated problem. So if a problem was, hey, I, I just read an article on the news about a, sh a short manufacturer that's running low on cotton. Or their, their supply chain is goofy. I always start thinking about is if I was in that, what, what are some small ways that I might be able to help that problem? Got it. Okay. So it's a creative juice piece. It's yeah. all it is. It's just like when you're doing jumping jacks. Like you, it's not a work product. You're just it's just getting your muscles flowing. Beautiful. Pump an iron for your creativity. There we go. Minute number four. Uh, minute number four, it's, I call it the time machine. So I kind of fast forward in my mind to something I really want. So Paul, let's say it's you and you're like, hey, I really want to win a Nobel Prize someday. So then imagine that you're winning the Nobel Prize and a reporter comes up to you and says, Mr. Epstein, congratulations. What percentage of this accomplishment would you attribute to your creativity? And so when I do this for myself, I, I, I never see myself answering that question like, like a half a percent, you know, how about 1%? Of course, it's always like 30% or 60%. And sure. so all this does, Paul, it cements in my mind the importance of creativity toward the goals that I care about the most. And the last minute, now I'm in minute number five, now I take an actual problem that, that I really do care about that's personal. So it could be a business problem. It could be a personal thing. So for me, like I gained a couple pounds during COVID. I'm like, all right, I got to blow this off. I got to burn this off. Again, I just try to think about how many small ways could I fix the, uh, attempt the problem, improve the problem in one minute. So it's a one minute sprint. I could drink more water. I could I could have healthy snacks at the office so I don't go home and overeat. I could stop eating at a certain time during the day. I could exercise more. I could take the stairs instead of the elevator. So it's not, again, trying to solve the problem all at once. It's thinking about little teeny bites at the problem. So that's my process, five minutes a day. And I probably took more than five minutes to explain it. But the whole notion is, this quick, just repetitive five minutes a day, that's like taking a shot of creativity and it fuels me for 16 hours going forward. So that's where you're bringing us because I was going to ask how you came up with these five elements. And if I know you the way I do, I'm sure those weren't your original five. It, it, they probably iterate, you evolve uh, just like anything else. But what I just took away from your closing piece there is it fuels you for the day. So this is really an energy. If you had to put a through line through all five, I, and feel free to respond to this, is energy the through line? Like what is the why of the process? I heard energy, but what's your take on that? I would say it's creative energy. So for me, that's a specific five-minute ritual designed to keep me creative from morning to night. Got it. I would just say for anybody listening, you know, maybe creativity isn't your primary thing. Like that's my passion in life. And maybe someone else's is peak performance or, or it's being an outstanding leader or being a wonderful uh, a wife or, or husband. Whatever your thing is, the point is design your own ritual. You're welcome to use mine if you want. But, but if you just take a five-minute ritual designed to boost your skills and energize you with whatever your thing is throughout the day, do it every morning. That, that's, that's like taking a, a shot of espresso that just lasts for, for forever. It's, it's, and it's just each day gets getting better. As we take a short break from today's interview, I'd like to share a quick reminder to check out the episode show notes on playmakerspod.com, where you will find a treasure trove of key insights, thought starters, and additional resources from today's conversation. Also, 
A quick shout out to our show sponsor, Audible, who is offering each and every playmaker a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial when you visit audible.playmakerspod.com. With that, let's get back to the conversation. It's time to level up. So everybody listening in, we've heard, we've teased out a bit that this was a very big year for you. And like you said, it wasn't your first rodeo in writing a book, but I know you're super proud about just in this case, the art of impact that you continue to put out via these innovation uh, tools and everything else that you're doing. So Big Little Breakthroughs is the book. We're probably at this point a few months removed from the official launch and release. You've talked about it, but if you could just give us that central premise, what inspired the book? And also, because I know it's extremely rich in research, maybe one thing that surprised you the most during the process of writing the book. Yeah, thanks, Paul. So the book is called Big Little Breakthroughs, How Small Everyday Innovations Drive Oversized Results. And, and the inspiration behind it is that, you know, most of us think of innovation as like this big topic that's out of our reach, inventing the electric automobile or, you know, SpaceX or something. And, and we say, great for Elon Musk, but I'm a normal person. How does that apply to me? And I tried to flip that whole concept upside down. This is like innovation for the rest of us. Again, sort of helping everyday people become everyday innovators. And the way that we go about it, I think a much more pragmatic approach, actually, is instead of taking these moonshots, is taking little baby steps, micro-innovations, but cultivating high-frequency micro-innovations or big little breakthroughs on a daily basis. And here's why. It becomes way more accessible. If you run a call center, you might not have the ability to take a industry-changing billion-dollar bet, but you can apply creativity for sure. So it's way more accessible to all of us. It's way more, it's way less risky. So you, you screw up a little teeny thing, so what? If you screw up a bet your career and company thing, that's a problem. So it's less risky, it's more accessible, you're building critical skills in the meantime, so the best way to get good at something is repetition, now you're doing the reps. And then finally, those little things add up. And I discovered in the research that, actually according to Harvard, 77% of the US gross domestic product is not driven by those headline attention-grabbing big ideas, they come from the everyday meat and potatoes, big little breakthroughs. And so these little things really do drive progress, even though they may not make the cover of a magazine. So I tried to write the book to create a simple, logical uh, shift to help everyday people become everyday innovators. So I examine the mindsets, the habits, and the tactics of the most creative people and organizations on the planet. So I, in, in the, you mentioned about the research. I, I spent over 1,000 hours on the book. I researched uh, academic research, neuroscience research, business research, but also personal interviews. I interviewed CEOs, billionaires, celebrity entrepreneurs, uh, nonprofit leaders, and, and, and everyday people. And, and who are just doing amazing things. And, and that really became the through line is like, all right, how do, how do normal folks like you and me get their creative uh, juices flowing, build the skills, build that muscle and deploy it to drive results? Gotcha. Gotcha. And I know, I love the spirit of everything you just said. And within the book, there are these eight core obsessions, as you call them, of everyday innovators. So again, as a playmaker, you may think you're a 10 out of 10 on the innovation scale. It's something that fires you up, juices you up, or you may be lower on the scale, but maybe there's something in the past 20, 30 minutes so far that has inspired you to think, now I've kind of repositioned innovation in my mind. It feels more, to your point, accessible, tangible. And so there are a few obsessions that particularly caught my eye. And I think that 
as a playmaker community, we'd be super intrigued about. Can you dive deeper on start before you're ready and use every drop of toothpaste? Those two in particularly, I, I, I mean, it, I kind of just stopped in my tracks, but just walk us through those. Sure. So real quickly, the basis, uh, first of all, is that for, uh, the research that we covered in the first part of the book, every human being is creative. And, and it's just crystal clear that we all have creative capacity. I like to say creativity is more like your weight than your height. So I, I'm, you know, we, we've been together in the same room and I'm 5'5 I'm five, five on a good day. So try as I may, I, I'm not going to be 6'3 next month. Just not going to happen. But my weight, I can control by my behavior, exercise, nutrition, et cetera. Creativity is exactly like that. Every one of us can boost and, and expand our creative capacity. So once we sort of have that premise that we all can be innovators in our own ways, we, I examine th these commonalities among, and this is through not only personal experience, but, but decades of research, what are the common mindsets and approaches that the most innovative people take? And what I discovered are these eight principles that you're describing, these eight obsessions, as I call them. And most of them are counterintuitive. They're the opposite of what we've been taught, the opposite of what most of us think, but with a little mindset shift that can make a huge difference. So with that as the backdrop, the first one you asked me about is the principle, start before you're ready. The thing is this, most of us wait. We, we see an opportunity or a challenge, we say, okay, I'm going to wait until the boss or, or someone gives me a directive. I'm going to wait until I have total confidence or until I have ideal conditions or until my game plan is bulletproof. But the problem with waiting is that we, we miss an opportunity. We either wait too long and miss it altogether or we, we give up a head start. The, the most innovative people do the opposite. They say, okay, here's the, here, here it is, and I'm just going to get after it, recognizing full well that we don't have all the answers, that we don't have the perfect game plan, that we're going to need to adapt and pivot and course correct and, and, and change along with changing conditions. But, but it's the idea of getting started and not letting time slip through your fingers. And, and we've seen this time and time again. One of the stories in, in the book, I interviewed a guy named Matt Ishbia. Uh, who was an athlete actually in college, and, and he now is the CEO of uh, United Wholesale Mortgage, the second largest mortgage company in the uh, world, I believe. Uh, he, he's now worth 12 or $13 billion, depending on the day. But Matt told me this when I was interviewing him for the book. He said, you know, Josh, he goes, let's say you and I both see an opportunity. And he goes, let's say you have more money and you're smarter than me and you got more resources. And by the way, he was being polite. I have none of those things. But he said, he said, let's just say you wait for six months and, and, and work it out and get every get committees and, and model everything to you have the perfect game plan. He goes, and let's just say I start today. Here's what's going to happen. I start today and my first iteration stinks. It's a mess. And then tomorrow it stinks also, but it's a little teeny bit better. And each day I keep learning and I'm, I'm adapting in real time while you're out there trying to figure things out. He goes, by the sixth month mark, when you actually launch this thing, I've had a hundred cycles. I'm going to be light years ahead of you, not because I was smart or anything. It's because I just got going. And so that's the core principle in essence. Start before you're ready. So this in a sports term for those that are fans of baseball, it, it's this is batting reps. Like in his example, he he had so much more batting practice before you ever even pulled the bat above your shoulder. So I love that. Yeah. So the second one you asked about, it's another one that's sort of counterintuitive. We often think that, hey, I'd love to be more innovative, but I need more. And there's like a fill in the blank. I need more money. I need more time. I need more people. I need more equipment. I need more uh, materials. And so this is the opposite. Use every drop of toothpaste is the notion of doing more with less. It's the notion of being scrappy and using grit and hustle and determination and spit and shine and resourcefulness as opposed to relying on external resources. And, and, and it's funny, you know, I always kind of 
playfully respond when people say, oh, I want to be more innovative, but I don't have enough of something. I say, you know, if the amount of resources that you had equaled your level of creativity, the federal government would be the most creative organization on the planet and startups would be the least. And of course, we know the exact opposite is true. So the principle, use every drop of toothpaste is, okay, yeah, we may be resource constrained, but maybe we can figure that out. And one quick example that I always like to share is I studied music in college. As mentioned, I was a jazz musician, am a jazz musician. And I, and I had this professor that would force me to remove strings from the guitar. So he would make me take off half the strings, three strings from a six string instrument. And so you're thinking immediately like, okay, man, that's going to screw up your creativity. And at first it was really weird because I couldn't rely on the patterns that I knew. But then because I was forced, I had fewer resources. I had to solve musical problems in fresh ways. And actually my creativity accelerated because in this case I used every drop of toothpaste. Okay. Uh, That's beautifully said, super applicable to all of us. Let's take a left turn here. We've been talking a lot about, and I know for you and I, we are much more about work-life harmony versus the the cliche term is balance. I think we, we found a calling, we pour ourselves into it all to positively impact others. And that impact is something that is core to our entire community listening in. So I wanna take you through, Josh, a bit of a personal exercise that I have found is extremely purpose-centered and purpose-driven, but also results in understanding what somebody's internal fire of impact is. So I call it the lifeline. So let's assume you have a blank sheet of paper in front of you, and I ask you to write a horizontal line, so from left to right. On the left, that is birth. On the right is present day. Above the line are peaks of life. Below the line, valleys of life. So if you could share with us one peak and then one valley, and select the one that you feel has molded you, shaped you, groomed you most in terms of who you are today? So let's start with the peak and then we'll transition to the valley. Man, it's a really good question. Um, you know, because I, so I'm 50 now and, and you get, you know, you, you realize that there's a lot of oscillation in life. You have more peaks sure. and more values the longer you go. I still have plenty of both, by the way. Um, it's a hard question. I, I think that... Um, I know this is going to sound like a cheesy Hallmark card, but 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 connecting with my wife Tia has got to be the peak. And I, I love my kids too, of course. But just Tia is like my soulmate, and you know, I just we sort of came together in a weird way, and and I just am, you know, I, we've been married now eight years, and I couldn't be happier. So that that's probably the one that comes to mind the most. I mean, I think you know, economically, you know, we, I had a big exit with with Eprise. And, um, but, but the reward there wasn't so much, I mean, you know, I'm nothing against economic gain that that's great. And you can do a lot with, with money, whether it's, it doesn't have to be draping yourself with gold. You could be philanthropic. I mean, it's sort like, sort of like stored energy. And so there was, you know, an economic reward, but, but also just seeing like the impact that you made on others and stuff. I mean, I guess maybe in my, my, uh, advanced age, I started looking back and, and measuring things more than just dollars. It's more like, okay, these people were able to take care of their kids and send their kids to college. And, and these people who were along the ride with me now learn something and went and started their own company. So I think there's been some moments like that that have been really cool. Um, there's certainly been moments in, in, you know, writing my first book and hitting the New York Times in the first week is, was pretty cool. And now it's published in, you know, 16 languages or whatever. I mean, knowing that people around the world are, again, it's not so much about how many books did you sell, but it's more about how many lives did you change? That, For that's, sure. That's, 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 it's hard to pick one. Um, the Valley, also hard to pick one because I've had all kinds of tough ones. Um, but maybe one that comes to mind. So I was... Um, I was building my company, Eprise, and 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 this was in two 
thousand. We got a um, a venture, our venture capitalist at the time gave us a commitment, a verbal commitment for an additional three million dollars. And based on that commitment, I hired more people and took out more office space and you know invested blah blah blah. So I get a call like a month later saying, Hey Josh, you know that. $3 million we talked about. Listen, I'm really sorry, but this, the, the this NASDAQ had just tanked and, and we've decided to get out of the venture capital business. So there's no $3 million. You're on your own, but don't take it personally. And I'm sorry, man, I, I took it personally. And, and again, it wasn't about money. It was about like, I was responsible for 40 families at that time. And I, I made commitments. And and so anyway, what happened was really tough. I, we, we just, I mean, this was like rock bottom. So I, I spent the next couple months, you know, getting in early 5, 6 a.m. every day, leaving it, you know, after midnight, seven days a week. And it was stressful. I'm trying to find new investors. And it was re- got ugly with the old investors. Anyway, just real quickly, it came down to the last minute. So I had an all-company meeting scheduled that day. And, and it was pre- previously scheduled. But coincidentally, that was the day that everybody's paycheck was due. And the problem is, I by that time, I had pulled every trick out of the, I knew, I stretched vendors, blah, blah, blah. And I, I, I woke up that morning with $0 in my bank account. And I was getting close with some new investors, but I actually didn't know how it was going to end. So that morning, I wrote two speeches. This is what I'm going to say to my team if we save the company. This is what I'm going to say to the team if we lose it. And I'm not exaggerating, 15 minutes before that company was gone, doors padlocks, Dream, dreams shattered. I got the wire from this new investor. And I, I walked in exhausted, sweating, you know, beaten down and said, guys, we saved the company. And and, and I'm, let me just say, like, first of all, it was wildly painful. Like, it was awful. And I got lucky. Like, it could have absolutely 100% gone the other way. So I don't, I'm not, you know, being, this. I wasn't my smartness. It was my stupidity that got me there in the first place, probably. But I don't take credit for that. Point is, though, that was a very low low. That was a, a valley. But it was really impactful because I said, first of all, never again. I'm never going to be beholden to somebody. I'm never going to make decisions based on things that aren't, aren't concrete. And, and that actually made me a far better leader and it made our company far stronger going forward. So even though it was wildly painful in the moment, I look back now with, with fondness because I, we, we all learned a lot and grew a lot from that moment. Yeah. Well, for one, thank you for sharing that with us and being open. And it, it reminds me almost immediately, and this will resonate a lot, just given the story that you just shared. So uh, former NFL running back Curtis Martin, I was once, in, I heard his TED talk in person. Uh, this is a few years back now. And his story was, uh, the big takeaway was underneath our biggest problems lie our biggest opportunities. And that's exactly almost in parallel track as you were sharing the story, it's, it, it mirrors a lot of what I took from that. So I'm sure everybody tuning in is resonating with that. All right, let's have a little fun with this one. So yeah, just real quickly, I think the takeaway, just real quick, I'm sorry, but about yeah. the, the peaks yeah. and valleys, because we're all going to have peaks and valleys in our lives. Anyone listening, I would say in the peak moments, don't become arrogant. Don't, don't become full of yourself because you got to recognize that that's a temporary state. You know, it's awesome. Like slap, spike the ball, enjoy the moment, but don't get all caught up and drinking your own, you know, cool or whatever, like recognize that there Great will be advice. peaks and valleys no matter how high you get. And in those valleys, also recognize, like you said, doesn't mean it's fun. I'm not saying like go hug your failures or any of that's nonsense, but like let's recognize, okay, it sucks, but that's part of the gig. And, and failures and setbacks and adversity are part of success. And so we have to also recognize as painful as it may be, you're right, that's the opportunity to learn and grow and recognize that, that if life is a series of oscillations, when you're laying on the mat beaten and battered and bloodied, you're not gonna have to stay there. So, so let's say, okay, let's learn from it. Let's dust ourselves off and get back in the fight and aim for that next peak. So let's just recognize that going forward. 
Yeah. And your point about oscillations and let's call it a roller coaster, because when I do a lifeline, it's exactly that. It looks like it looks like a stock that's very unpredictable. <laughs> you know, it's up, down, up, down, up, down. And the point being, whether it's a peak or a valley, it's temporary. So so to your point, don't get too arrogant when you're high because you ain't going to stay high forever. I promise, especially if you take your foot off the pedal. Right. And then same thing, adversity. Take the pandemic as an example. In the moment, it feels like forever. But when we look back at it, we'll say, man, that was a rocky 12, 18 months, whatever it is. But in the grander scheme, there's still kind of that rebound. All right. So one final piece and then we're going to transition. Um, so I'm a genie. You're on a deserted island. All right. You get three wishes from this said genie. And the only thing you cannot wish for is A, get off the island. B, more wishes. C, something that will get you off the island. So sorry, no boat, no helicopter. You're on this deserted island, but you could ask for any three other things. What would your three wishes be? So just clarifying question, am I staying on that island forever? That, that, that's the table stakes, yes. Yeah. So I would say at that point, I, I would say that my purpose on this earth is not to in, enjoy my things, you know, in, in comfort. It's to help the world. So I would, in that case, if that was the constraint, I would I wish for completely selfless things like, you know, cure the all all environmental challenges and make a world sustainable, you know, end all injustices and suffering, you know, make sure there's plenty of resources for so we can, you know, abolish war and anger and hatred. So I would I, I don't know exactly what they would be, but they would be all completely unrelated to me because I'm stuck on this desert island forever. If you said like I have three wishes but I get to not be on a desert island, I would have a moral struggle there because I'm sure I would say, "Hey, I want some cool stuff for me too and the thing." But literally if I was on a desert island and there's no way I'm getting off, I'd say, "Cool, you know what? I'm going to live on this desert island till till my last breath knowing that I made the world a better place." Mm. All right, beautiful. So now for the grand finale and you actually But to be clear, I'm not that kind and benevolent if I was just in my own house. I get it. I get it. We gave you some constraints, so you you, you made the best of it. All right. <laughs> so here is the mic drop grand finale. And it ties back to a couple things you've said throughout the conversation. But assume that your life is in phenomenal condition, finances. You, your family for generations are taken care of. Minimal stress, minimal anxiety. You literally have a blank canvas in front of you to live on your terms. What would you like to spend the rest of your life working toward? You know, I don't say this in a in a uh, arrogant way at all. I say this with great, great humility and, and respect. Um, I kind of feel like I do that now. Um, doesn't mean that I, there aren't moments of anxiety and stress. I mean, it's not, nothing's ever perfect. And if it was, it probably wouldn't be helpful, honestly. But for me, I, I get to do, I'm so grateful that I get to, I get to learn all the time. I get to teach and share all the time. I get to create stuff all the time. You know, I get to, I get to dabble and, and, you know, I just still feel at the, at my core, personally, I'm a jazz musician. And sometimes I'm doing that with a guitar and other times I'm doing that with a startup. And other times I'm doing that when writing a book. To me, jazz is the art of creating something out of nothing. It's about navigating difficult circumstances. It's about listening and learning and changing and evolving and adapting. And I, I'm, so grateful that I, I I really get to do that every day. And I would say anybody listening, you know, it's easy to think that you're not in that position. But I would say probably more of us are than we might think. You know, I know we all have financial pressures. Again, I'm not trying to be glib about that with, with deep respect. But like, you know, most of us can actually be the person we want to be now. And we may still have to spend some time doing things we don't want to do to, to earn, you know, to pay the bills or whatever. But I, I think that too often we say to ourselves, okay, I got to get something and then I can be who I want to be. 
I, I think we almost would flip-flop that and say, I'm going to be who I want to be. And in turn, as a byproduct of actually being authentic to who I am and what my calling is, I'll probably end up getting a lot more than if all I did is chase it in the first place. Mm. So good. So good. That is the path to authenticity. Josh, from the bottom of my heart and every single person listening in, know that you have helped all of us level up across all aspects of life. So thank you so much for being on Playmakers and we can't wait to continue the relationship. We'll see you super soon. Thanks, brother. And thanks for your incredible contribution as well. You're doing amazing things. Loved what you just heard? Share it with another Playmaker. And if you gain significant value from today's episode and genuinely feel that you have leveled up, would so appreciate if you gave us a five-star rating. For all of today's show notes, head over to playmakerspod.com where you can not only enjoy additional resources from this show, but all previous episodes as well. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you tune in from. And on a personal note, I'd love to connect one-to-one. Hit me up anytime on LinkedIn at Paul Epstein or Instagram at Paul Epstein Speaks. Playmakers is produced by Detroit Podcast Studios in collaboration with Purpose Labs. Wishing you a high impact week of action and purpose. See you next time on Playmakers. Playmakers.